Welcome to The Best of Us, an education podcast that highlights the concepts, practices, and stories of K-12 professional learning leaders working to enhance the educator experience and bring an excellent education to all students. To get the best of our students, we need the best of our educators. And in each episode, we'll bring you the professional learning leaders who are doing just that to enable your work. The Best of Us is brought to you by KickUp, your partner for ensuring that the investments you make to increase educator capacity find their way into the classroom. Hi, I'm Jeremy Rogoff, co-founder and CEO of KickUp and host of the Best of Us podcast. In this episode, I sat down with Dr. Kevin McGowan, superintendent of Brighton Central School District in New York and recent recipient of the National Superintendent of the Year Award by AASA. Dr. McGowan and I break down the connection between the district strategic planning process and the professional learning experience of educators. We don't often have current superintendents on the podcast, but I found Dr. McGowan's orientation towards centering the educator experience as such a practical perspective worth sharing. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Kevin McGowan, welcome to the best of us. Thanks, Jeremy. So happy to be here. Appreciate you having me. Yeah, I'm super excited to have you. You were recently named superintendent of the year. Congratulations. It's uh as a basketball fan, I think about, you know, Joel Embiid is the MVP of of the Sixers and of the NBA and you're kind of like a M- MVP of superintendents. Just ask my mother, she will tell you that all day long. But thank <laughs> you. I appreciate it. I, I work with really great people and in a fantastic place and uh it's the the reward in the first place was the success of our kids, but this is certainly a very kind and thoughtful recognition from my colleagues and I'm super appreciative. Well deserved. And um, I'm genuinely excited to have you on the podcast today because you have been serving in Brighton Central School District for 14 years, which is longer than the than the average superintendent by a long shot. So it sounds like you've had an opportunity to really make lasting change there. And I'm excited to dig into how you did that. Um, I thought a good place for us to start would just be um, kind of framing the problem that you sought to solve at Brighton when you when you joined the district um, and this idea of kind of closing the gap for all kids. Yeah, I, I'd be happy to, Jeremy. So um, again, thanks for the, the kind words. I appreciate that. And, and yeah, it certainly has been a long time, uh, but a really a, a tremendous gift in my life personally and professionally to be in the same place for that long and to have that opportunity to really embark on a process of long-term change. For me personally, just to give you kind of the backdrop and and listeners the backdrop, I started here and it's a place where first ring suburb, Rochester, New York, um, an interesting mix of a very traditionally um, well-resourced affluent community, diverse community as well, especially for a suburban district um, and a place that always focused on high achievement. And a lot of people would say, well, you kind of, you joined the Yankees. If you're a Yankees fan, that, that works well, a successful place before. And I would acknowledge that. I mean, part of the attraction for me to applying for the job was to have my own children in a high performing place, uh, traditionally high performing. What I discovered when I came was very interesting to me. One, it was a place with an exceptional staff, exceptionally talented staff. Uh, exceptionally engaged school community, supportive school community, um, and all of the things I anticipated in terms of it just being a a high-performing professional environment. Uh, It's cool here to be the smart kid in class. It's cool here to be the teacher that puts their hand up to volunteer. It's cool here to be uh, a a person that wants to go above and beyond and think differently about problems. Those things are honored in the professional environment here, and I was thrilled to join that kind of team, 
Uh, but what we noticed over time and, and, and really dug into was the fact that this high performance was not for everybody. That in our school environment, uh, we had over a long, long period of time seen a great deal of success in terms of outcomes for many kids going to high performing, rigorous, uh, you know, secondary options, Ivy League schools, other competitive environments. And what we learned was that that really that reputation and that experience for some was perhaps uh, glossing over the fact that not everybody was having that same experience. And if you think about really the way we hopefully were shifting 14 years ago, 10 years ago, even in, in public education and becoming much more aware of those among us that weren't accessing a high achieving environment, and weren't having that same success. Uh, we were, I think, a little bit at the forefront of, of confronting that. And uh, it was a series of conversations in our district with leadership team members uh, where we dug further into different data elements and looked at each other and said, this is not okay. The best example I can give you, the concrete example is that our graduation rate in 2013 was 89% for all students. 89% in a high performing district is low in and of itself. It shouldn't have been at that place. And it had traditionally been closer to low 90s, but even then, you would expect us to have been higher when kids are going to all these great places and we're getting all these accolades all the time and recognized as this great school with tons of AP classes and enriching opportunities. And uh, so we were digging into the idea of why is our graduation rate where it's at? What, what, what's behind that number? What should we be doing about it? But really in that research, we discovered that it was uh, much lower for certain groups of students. For example, it was 55% for African-American students at the time. So that was a tremendous gap for our kids. And, and we saw those kind of numbers across the board for students with special needs, our uh, Latino students, mixed race students. Essentially, it was clear that if you were white and affluent, you were much more likely in our system to be successful. I don't think this is very much different from what is experienced in many other places. I think what was different and what we're most proud of here is our willingness to confront that and to say, this is not all right. We need to close that gap. The result now is that our graduation rate is 98%. It's the highest in our area among the highest in the state. And it is that for all students. Our African-American students last year graduated 96% in four years, our June rate. So we've managed now to have a system where the gap between groups is plus or minus 2%. Um, in terms of graduation rate. And it's, it's, it's exciting. It's exciting because now success is for each individual child. We say every child, every day, every way we mean it, we're living it. We're not just saying it, but we're, we're walking the walk, so to speak. And, and it's an exciting uh, project to have been a part of and success to have been a part of. And the credit goes to many, many people, you know, a, a dynamic engaged leadership team, a supportive engaged board of education but a teaching staff that was willing to confront those inequities, think differently about their work and address the individual needs of every single student that they're working with. Yeah. Another reason why I was excited to have you on the podcast is because we don't often get to interview superintendents. We talk to district leaders, heads of teaching and learning, and then um, external folks who provide professional learning to school districts. But I think you brought a lens of um, what does it look like to marry a vision with actual execution of that vision and the first thing you noted in your answer was that you acknowledged there was a problem. You said, this is not okay, that there's a huge gap between 
our white affluent students and essentially everyone else. Um, and to me, it seems like acknowledging that problem, especially among a staff that it sounds like were already considered to be high performing and considered to be doing such a good job is a hard thing because there might be a certain level of complacency or of, you know, we're just, we're, we're doing a good job for our district and for our kids, but you had to kind of rattle the cages a little bit. So I'm curious, you know, how did you make that acknowledgement and make that change to staff culture when there might've been maybe some initial resistance or skepticism about it? Yeah, that's a really great question too. I think you, I, I don't know that there's, there's one or even two answers to that. It is so complex and, and involves a lot of different people doing many little things and some big things and, and uh, attacking the problem. So in, in this way, you know, to give you concrete examples, we have these conversations as a leadership team uh, in some smaller groups, you know, the way our format is, we have a large leadership team with all the principals, assistant principals, directors, and then we have a smaller group, which is called principals, but it includes several directors and our cabinet members also. And we were really researching and digging into the numbers and talking about subgroups of students and saying, hey, this isn't okay. But then it was, there is kind of one landmark moment in particular between myself and the high school principal, who's still the high school principal, by the way, a great teammate, a guy by the name of Dr. Tom Hall. And I remember we were in his office and we were really having this heart to heart about this is not okay and what are we going to do about it? And let's learn about every individual child that wasn't successful last year. Let's dig into that. And then we may better understand what we should be doing differently. And we did that. And he did that with uh, his team of assistant principals, counselors, the counseling staff, several teacher leaders, and literally put together a case study of every child that wasn't successful and learned, okay, these are the barriers. These are the things that seem to be getting in the way of them being successful. And these are some things we could do about that, number one. Number two, we did have a district-wide committee. It was a graduation rate task force that took a K-12 long view of that and traced back kids that weren't successful, where was it that they experienced difficulties in our system? And what could we have done differently? What were the predictive data pieces that tell us a child is likely to experience more trouble in high school? There's failure of certain courses at certain times in people's academic career that will give you a pretty good idea that they are not likely to graduate. And you can start to figure that out really early on. We also had primary level teachers saying, I could have told you that that child was going to struggle. And I would have told you that. So if we know that, why don't we do something about it earlier? Why is it second semester of senior year that we're bemoaning the problem or beginning of senior year or when they're not engaging in one of the required courses, you know, in May of their graduation year and they're just not showing up? A lot of kindergarten teachers could tell you that was going to happen long before that. Amazon knows exactly when I want to order something or they seem to have an uncanny ability to help me spend money or my family. They have figured out these predictive analytics. If they can figure that out for when my family needs toilet paper and send it automatically, can't we figure out something so important as when a child might experience great difficulty based on those same type of predictive data elements? So we did a lot of work around that, a lot of conversation around what does it have to look like for a child when they leave second grade, our primary building, and go to the three, four, five building? What, where do they need to be in order to be more successful later on? So this really was a K-12 undertaking. So those two things were happening at the same time. This graduation rate task force that was looking at this and taking a long view, and then the very micro high school team looking at every case study. And you know, our graduating classes are, you know, ballpark 300 kids. So we're also not a district that we're talking about a graduation 
a class of 35, 40, 50, my previous district in uh, Wyoming County, New York, Warsaw, we talked about 100% graduation rate and we worked towards that. We were talking about a much smaller class where you could wrap your arm, arms around things a little bit easier. This really requires an entire team of people being engaged in that process and looking at the difficulties. So then it was, once we uncovered some of those barriers, it was about going back and addressing those issues. A great example of that would be a course that we had at the time, still have, uh, an economics course. And it was known, well known in our school community as a very rigorous course. So economics in, in uh, New York, as I'm assuming elsewhere, is a required course for seniors. And uh, it, it was this very rigorous course that our kids would come back from college and say, my college econ course was much easier than, than this particular course. And we were very proud of that. You know, it was this college level course that every student had to take. The problem is it was becoming a barrier for many kids. And that didn't make any sense when it is, a, again, a required course that every high school senior in New York leaves with. We should have it continue to be rigorous, but we should understand that there's more we need to do to get kids across the finish line. And we can't just say, well, you know, uh, they should come to the table. They should do this. They should do this. When kids are slipping at that point in their senior year, why are we reaching out and doing more to support them, to help them, to engage their families? I remember a conversation that, that really still resonates with me today with a particular staff member who was frustrated with this scenario of we need to get every one of these kids across the finish line because it was not probably clearly communicated to him or, or we just were in that process of change that is so sticky sometimes. And I could tell that he was irritated in the context of another conversation. I, I just called the question and said to him, you know, and I knew him really well, again, the gift of being someplace for a time. And I said, you seem really frustrated. And it seems as though your frustration revolves around the idea that we want to make sure every child passes this class. And uh, what, can we dig into that? And, and through the course of the conversation, he basically revealed that it felt to him as though we were asking him to lower his standard. And he was very proud of this high standard of the course. And I explained to him very directly, I do not want you to do that in any way, shape or form. Like people can manipulate these numbers easily, frankly, in, in schools, I'm not saying people are dishonest, but there are plenty of ways to nurse kids across the finish line by, by reducing perhaps your standard in, in certain ways. And we did not want to do that. We still wanted to have that same very high standard for all of our kids. But I looked at him and said, please don't ever reduce your, your rigor. Don't reduce your standard. I want you to increase your standard. Looked at me quizzically and said, well, what do you mean? Your standard of care, your ethic of care, your standard for what you will do to help that child be successful. That's what I'd like to see you increase. So if it requires lots of phone calls home, if it requires, you know, thinking about alternative ways to assess a child's pro progress, you know, alternative ways to think about how we meet a child's needs uh, or learning needs in the classroom, we need to be open to that. We need to be thoughtful about that, help them achieve their success uh, without re lowering the bar but maybe it just looks different for different kids at different times. And so it, it was just a, one of those moments of many along this journey of like kind of confronting that uncomfortableness. And then we had different academic policies in place. We realized also part of our success has been increasing the number of kids in AP coursework, but advanced placement really including some of our enriching coursework from a very young age. We were uh, very uh, underrepresented from uh, particular parts of our population, marginalized underrepresented populations were absolutely underrepresented in our numbers in those classes. 
And we realize that more engaging rigorous coursework will also help you raise your graduation rate and your level of success for all kids. So we had to look at barriers to that. You know, what was happening in the way that we have prerequisites or requirements to get into particular classes? And should we be more thoughtful about that? And all those different kinds of small tweaks, small tweak, small tweak, let's address this, let's think differently about this, helped strategically, but it also helped us shift our culture. And this was the balance between strategy and culture and really establishing a culture that it was about every individual child, every day, every way that we could do that. Yeah, I think the way that you started that answer with first understanding every child that is struggling in this high school, who are they, you know, what drives them, why are they struggling, but then moving that up the chain to, okay, what are the systemic barriers that are keeping them from succeeding in the district does really toe that balance between the strategy and, and you know, the human beings that are, that you're trying to serve. One, one thing that you mentioned that I thought was interesting was this idea that, you know, a kindergarten teacher could have told you that, uh, you know, a certain student was going to struggle. I'm curious if you did anything or if you've done anything to uh, enhance or facilitate better sharing or collaboration between teachers who might be working with the same, you know, the same cohort of students, the kindergarten teacher to the first grade, the third grade, anything that you've done at the superintendent level to encourage and facilitate that type of collaboration? We have. We've really, over time, you know, uh, looked at K-12 consistency as an important part of what we do. We were very independent. We have four very large buildings, a K-2, a 3-5, a 6-8, and the 9-12 high school. And they were very, uh, you know, isolated, operating on an island for a very long time. Um, we've really made a, a very concerted effort to make everything K-12 as often as possible and, and connect people at the K-12 level. One, kind of in our planning and our strategic planning, which I know we'll want to talk about too, that's been, been a huge part of it. And then individually, more specific to your question, we have done a whole lot more to transition from second to third grade, from fifth to sixth grade, from eighth to ninth grade than we ever did before in terms of passing along the information that was important for staff and creating that continuum that we just, we didn't have. It was more like, okay, you're off to the next building, good luck. And now we have a series of activities and events, but also where teachers are meeting with teachers to review individual kids for sure. Yeah, and I know something that you have anchored a lot of your work around as a superintendent is the strategic planning process, which often is something that districts do, but then it sits on a shelf. And it's a really nice document that you can point out at board meetings, but doesn't necessarily make its way into practice. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about what the strate strategic planning process was that you undertook. Um, who was involved? How did you think about making that process um, meaningful for all students and all staff? Yeah, I really appreciate you asking that question because that's been the, the strategic underpinning of all of the work that has happened and continues to drive our conversations today. Uh, we began by really this idea that, you know, we've got great work happening, incredible professionals, thoughtful people in four separate buildings, high performers, but how do we really maximize the opportunity and the skill and the innovation and the resources here in this district? Part of it was driven by recognizing too that we had some really great initiatives happening, but very much in, in pockets. I'll give you a great example. Habits of Mind and, and the work done in that area, uh, really, really impressive, thoughtful work. But our K2 building took it on as a, a building goal once upon a time when it was much this much more bifurcated system. And they adopted the Habits of Mind approach and they invested 
uh, heavily in it in their classrooms. We invested as a district significantly in terms of professional development, dollars and time and resources, um, and have been incredible. They are a Habits of Mind School of Recognition. They were the first in the country to be named that. Ben Akalik came and did a great assembly with our kids. I and mean, we're super proud of that. And uh, that was really wonderful, amazing. And then kids leave in second grade, they go to third grade and they talk about their thinking and their teacher looks at them. They're smart people, the teacher I'm talking about, and they, they get it, except they, they don't. They don't get it the way the kids get it, frankly. Great example for me is I'm sitting at dinner one night, having had two kids go through that building and a third one in the building, my youngest, our daughter, by far our favorite child, look up at the uh, two boys, my older boys, and when the uh, service in the restaurant was really taking forever and she looked at them and said, you know, you really should use more flexible thinking. And she knew this work and they looked at her like she was nuts. And uh, I was proud on a lot of levels, by the way, but it struck me that we had just not done enough to deepen this across the whole district and, and take advantage of that opportunity because we were so isolated and we needed to be more thoughtful and strategic. So what evolved from there was a process called our blueprint planning process. The notion of a blueprint being iterative, you know, it shifts and changes based on when you put a hammer on the wall and you discover something, you need to be flexible in that. But we wanted to create a process here that was uh, very much practical, hands-on, would drive the work happening in the district and be the backbone for all of our committees and for our budget process, our allocation resources. So the blueprint was the comprehensive approach to planning for the whole district. Habits of mind is one example, but in pockets, there was this innovation, that innovation, this person wanted to try this. What if we pilot this? Can we hire this many staff members to go do this? Once upon a time, when you know we were in the land of milk and honey and there were plenty of resources, people could try this, try that, try this, try this. You'd make the argument that strategically it wasn't as effective, but it also wasn't financially from a resource perspective as effective. So all of these factors, right? Resources and kind of innovation fatigue, and then also changes happening in the state, state mandates, all of the noise around us, we were saying, whoa, whoa, whoa we, need a, we need a plan. We need a consistent way to get at this K through 12. We got to come together and figure it out. We also know we need to involve a lot of people in that conversation, staff members, community members. We, we want to engage everybody in that and be a part of it. So what evolved again was this blueprint planning process and what it, in, what it looks like today and over time has emerged to. We ask our community, our entire school community, so uh, staff, uh, parents, community members without kids in school, how are we doing? And we'll launch that a couple of weeks from now after our budget vote. Thank you very much for your support. How are we doing? What is it we should be thinking about long-term? What are your concerns right now? We're very vulnerable in that space. You know, it's customer satisfaction. What are we doing and what could we be doing differently? And we take a look at that data and we bring uh, then a large group of community members together and it involves staff, re staff representatives, our entire board of education, our leadership team, community members without kids in school, uh, parents currently with kids in school, uh, to an offsite retreat for a day. And it is, you know, anywhere from 50 to 70 people, depending on the year. And we basically ask them to dig into that information and help us figure out what we should be doing next. And we do that every single year. So this is a, a planning process that, it, again, is to, to your point at the beginning, the lead in about it not being a binder that sits on a shelf. This drives everything we do. So the way the day is formatted, uh, you know, involves people digging into that information, us sharing our analysis of the information, the first blush of that, our buildings and programs sharing very brief, quick, 
you know, five minute presentations on what's happening in their world and what their hopes and dreams are, what they would like to be addressing. And then really maximizing the time with the group of people to say, okay, these seem to be the priorities for the district. And we have several priority areas, the buckets basically that we're working on. They shift over time. Uh, academic excellence, rigorous coursework for all students, mental health and wellness, safety and security. Uh, again, shifting based on the needs of the community. And we ask them, what are your ideas? What should we do about it? Let's just brainstorm those, whatever those might be. After that group is done with that work and all that feedback is gathered, we get back together for another day of action planning with our leadership team. Our board is actually involved in our district in that as well, which we really drill down to, okay, these are all the ideas. Who's going to get that done and when are they going to do it? And then what is our goal in that overall area, you know, whichever the priority area is. And that now becomes the thread, everything that runs through our committee. So our curriculum council is using that. Our uh, financial side of the house is using that to predict what kinds of innovations and programs will be um, asked for in the next year's budget process. And what we've done is use that as a lens for everything. So we had some people come up with great ideas. Uh, COVID money would be a great example of this. You know, Hey, we should add this, we should do this, we should do this. And the question for us was, that's great. That's really wonderful and thoughtful. We have funding now for these things. Where does it fit in the blueprint? Where is that aligned to what we said is our focus and what we should be working on? So, uh, you know, it's really to, to, to summarize, what does that look like? Ask people how we're doing, gather their feedback, bring a group of people in to look at that and give us uh, more direction and ideas on what we should do about it. It's very collaborative with everybody. And then action plan, communicate it, live it, present on it, and now it becomes the thread for everything we do across the whole district. And uh, it's working well here. We now offer this also through the New York State Council of School Superintendents in, in other districts with some other people using this model. Um, and we're working now, as a matter of fact, in some other states with people have been interested in this approach that involves a lot of people, is very practical, and, and uh, just kind of gets at it without all of the, like, let's argue over the conjunction and boy, it's not a good plan. It doesn't say future ready. Well, we've kind of found a way to just do this more efficiently and gather everybody's feedback without torturing them with sticky notes and dots and chart paper necessarily, but in a way that really dynamically gets all of their feedback and puts together a plan that people can live by and is not sitting on a shelf. That's great. And it seems like that, that once a year offsite is so foundational to making this something that lives and breathes. Can you think of an example, either recently or in the past several years, of some type of insight or feedback from that offsite that really led its way into the blueprint and maybe a change that the district made that um, ultimately imp impacted teachers and students? Sure. I, I think that uh, the conversations we've had at those events around being more culturally responsive and thinking about both curriculum and pedagogy uh, as key aspects of that have, have come from that. And some of our equity work that has really made a big difference. So I, I, I talked a lot about closing those gaps, those achievement gaps based on confronting the data and coming up with individual plans for kids and intervening. But it's also about institutionally thinking differently about how we interact with every group of students in our community. Uh, we are... 30 plus percent uh, diverse, so so non-white. And then depending on how you start to define those things relative to economic diversity, over the period of time where our achievement gap is closed, we've become both more diverse and less economically affluent and um, had to really be thoughtful about, again, not just developing those plans, but how do we become more culturally responsive 
And then how do we drive professional development to help people figure that out? Reduce the implicit bias that they have in their work, engage more kids from different groups in rigorous coursework, and how do we think about both our curriculum being more culturally responsive, but also then our pedagogy and our teaching practices. And that really came from learning throughout the year, but then driven in those conversations where we had people sitting at the table saying like, this is all well and good. However, you're not getting it. You don't, you're not hearing this or you're not seeing this. And this is how that impacts a particular population. Have you considered it this way? Uh, I think really those thoughtful, deep discussions with lots of people in the room have driven us in the right direction. That's great. So taking culturally responsive teaching and pedagogy as an example from that offsite planning process and from the community input, what are some ways that that shifted professional learning? Because to me, the, the connection point between the strategic plan and actual change in the classroom is what are teachers doing differently and what's the professional learning that they need to shift their practice? So can you talk a little bit about how that changed what professional learning looked like in the district? So we walk right out of that process and plan our professional development for the year based on the results of the blueprint. So the plans for professional development at our superintendent's conference days uh, through faculty meetings throughout the year are driven by the conversations and the plans that are developed through the blueprint process. So there, there is a, an absolute direct line from A to B that says we will not plan our professional development until we have determined what our priorities in the district are and how we're going to get at them. And then we'll support people with professional development that is focused on that. Uh, I guess a, a real concrete example would be a lot of conversations that have happened over several years around equity in our grading practices. And then that became a focus for our professional development and professional learning uh, to really understand what that meant and then provide people with the right tools to have that happen in their classroom. And it seems like you have this built-in feedback loop because this is happening every year. Um, as you look ahead now, and there's always more work to be done to close the gap with graduation rates, close the gap with access to AP courses, you name the kind of achievement metric. What are some of the challenges that you anticipate or, or, or unsolved problems that you're still looking to solve when it comes to um, achieving your big goals as a district? Well, I think that the key for us right now is when we're seeing, you know, the gap closed and, and I can confidently say nearly all kids being successful in our system, it's about now shifting our definition of success. So our definition of success, you know, largely in this conversation and other conversations has been about that, that graduation rate. And it's a really important measure. It is the, the ticket that gets people to other places and, and the next step in their life. My question now that's driving a lot of my conversations is success at what level? So is everybody achieving their maximum level of success in their chosen path? So I'm curious, and we're, we're now working through this next step, how many kids are achieving mastery? Is it about just getting by or is it about really getting kids to the highest place that they can possibly be? So that's going to be the next big challenge to get to that place. And then really supporting people in terms of their professional development to move beyond just competency and, and that, that level of success that we want everybody to get through to, but are we really driving them to that next place? And are we helping them early enough think about what the path is that they want to be on? Um, what places will help get them there? What kinds of schools, what kind of college, what kind of career opportunities or other post-secondary, post-high school options? 
um, I think that that's the next big challenge for us is, is really getting to that level of mastery that might look different. Yeah. And that's a good place to be after, you know, closing that initial gap of, of graduation rates. Um, Kevin, it's been such a pleasure to have you on the podcast. I guess as we close out, is there any any parting words you would have for district leaders or superintendents that are that might be looking to emulate some of the work that you've done when it comes to kind of marrying the strategic plan, the community input, and ultimately impact in the classroom? I, I'm really sympathetic to the challenge that every superintendent and school leader deals with relative to just the difficulty of change and the personal nature of the resistance. So I would start very personally by saying to people, you know, we're, we're all there for each other. So reach out, you know, I'm happy to help. I know a lot of people are, and it's challenging because you need to have your, your board on board. You need to have a team that can carry the water. It's not about one person. Be vulnerable, listen, slow down where you need to slow down. Rushing the change is not gonna make it any better. Have the courage and fortitude to stick with it, knowing that the individual outcome for every child will be dramatically better in their life if you can stick with it. Sticking with it also means knowing when not to push too hard, right? Without ever sacrificing what's right for kids. There is this beauty to knowing what to do the right time for the right reasons in the right way, uh, but stick with it and over time it will happen and if you're on that moral high ground of doing the right things for kids, as hard as it might be, you'll get there eventually and appeal to people's heart and be willing to have hard conversations with people where you're asking them to really think deeply about what would you want for your own child? For me, it boils down to that all of the time. What outcome would I want? What level of service would I want? My, my wife and I, I would assume like most parents, hopefully all parents, put their kids as a center of their universe or wanting the best thing for them. And I try and frame all of our work around what would I want for my own child? And when I'm sitting across the most difficult circumstances with either kids or parents or staff members, it's about what if it was one of my own kids and what would I want? And then finally, I'd say, think very deeply about strategy and culture. You know, your strategy and holding yourself accountable with a very clear plan that is something circulated among your whole school community that you're living by you know, as a superintendent, what are you doing to regularly monitor the progress of that plan in terms of your interactions with other administrators, asking them where they are with their goals, having people unpack that plan to say, well, then what does it mean for you? What are you doing in your space? And be very direct about holding people to that plan when there's a new idea or a great idea saying to people, hey, where does that fit in our plan? You know, that's a great idea, but like, let's push on that as we move forward and figure out where that can be integrated in the plan. But let's be thoughtful about that implementation because it's easy to run for the shiny penny. It's harder to say, hold on a second, let's make sure it fits in the plan the right way. And then always be aware of the fact that as Peter Drucker said, culture eats strategy for breakfast and really appeal to people's heart, mind, souls around the idea that what would we want for every child if they were ours? And how do we make sure we're having an environment where every single child matters and we're not looking past the difficulties of one for the bigger picture, but addressing everybody as an individual. If you can do those things, you're likely to see, I think, a lot of success in the district. And again, I and many other people are happy to help and be a resource. It's, uh, it's our life's work and we're very proud of it. Yeah. You ended with the personal vulnerability and you, you started with the organizational vulnerability. You know, we have a problem, like we are not meeting all kids uh, where we need to. So I, I really appreciate that, um, that tone and, and uh, just the, the level of authenticity that you bring to the work. So um, thank you so much for being on The Best of Us.
You know, Jeremy, I appreciate it. We, we have lots of partners and I think partners like you, partners like our, our good friends at Thought Exchange that help us go out and ask that question about what work should be done. Our partners um, in many aspects of the work who have pitched in and said, we wanna be a part of this uh, are making a big, big difference for our kids and families. So thanks for highlighting this and being a part of it. Love the work that you do. And uh, thanks for just furthering the conversation for everybody. Thanks, Kevin. You bet. Thanks for listening to The Best of Us. If you liked our show, please be sure to join the KickUp PLC at kickup.co slash PLC, where you'll find all of the episodes of our podcast and other resources to help educators maximize the impact of their professional learning program.